Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Would you open our hearts and uh, profoundly speak into them? Whether in this room or joining online, thank you for Gary and what he's just sung, for your anointing on him. Thank you for Johnny's leading of us, bringing us to the place where our hearts are soft and tender. I'm aware that the enemy would want to distract us at this point, and I ask you, Lord, to shut us in with yourself and to change our hearts by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my name is Malcolm. I have the privilege of leading the church here in Dundonald. Thank you for joining us tonight here in the room, or if you're joining us online, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Would you please turn to two portions of the Bible that I'd like to read with you for a moment. The first is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. It is a very famous portion of the Bible. In fact, we'll be looking at it in a few weeks on a Sunday morning. Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. And we read this from verse 5. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now turn to the same gospel, but this time chapter 18. Verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, that is the Lord Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church 
sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, that's about a year's salary, his Lord ordered him to be sold to a, together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe me. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, you wicked slave, I forgive you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he should pay his entire debt. So my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. I'd like to talk to you this evening about forgiveness and unforgiveness. The Bible has plenty to say about this subject. In the Old Testament, forgiveness is largely focused on God's forgiveness of individuals or groups. But the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels also addresses how we can forgive each other. Those teachings are a precious, important guide for modern day living. Jesus mentions forgiveness several times in the Gospels, yet he never defines the term. He never tells us what it actually means. And it can leave us as contemporary listeners to fill in the blanks. Is forgiveness something that you do? Is it something that God does through us? Does it describe an action such as a reconciliation or an amnesty or a truce? Does forgiveness require action on the part of the person who has offended us? Is forgiveness something that we feel? Or is it something that we decide upon? What is it? And how does it work in our lives and in our hearts? And should we always forgive no matter what? I don't have to be a prophet or a special man to understand that 
in the following, the week that lies ahead, around one, two, maybe 3,000 people will listen to this sermon online. And those of us that are in this room tonight are listening to it. And all of us will have had an issue at one point or another with either seeking the forgiveness of someone else or having to make a decision about whether or not we will forgive them. We'll have wrestled with it. Some of us, certainly I, have had difficulties with this idea. I've struggled with it. I've tried to work out what it looks like for me. I don't think I've always got it right. And I guess many of us would find it difficult to forgive ourselves for things we've said or things we've done. And if we could rewrite history, we'd go back and rewrite it, but we can't. And we find ourselves here tonight on the 29th of July, 2018, thinking about this together. Don't rush away from it. Don't try to fill your mind with something else. Don't uh, think about everything. Don't catch up on Facebook. Don't think this is a good time to order the shopping at Asda so it can get delivered on Wednesday. Allow yourself some time to think about this properly. Many of you will have heard of the famous Christian leader and author, Corrie ten Boom. She and her sister, Betsy, were imprisoned in a concentration camp for helping Jews escape Amsterdam and Holland during the Second World War. And Corrie's sister, just a few days before the end of the Second World War, Betsy died. Years later, Corrie, who was preaching and teaching on forgiveness around the world, went to what was then called East Germany. And at the end of a meeting, a man strode forward and said, I was one of the guards in the concentration camp that treated and looked after you and your sister. Would you forgive me? What would you have done? I'll tell you what she did in a moment. But let me tell you another story. In Poland during the Second World War, a, Jer- a Jewish man lived called Simon, or Simone, but Simon Weisenthal. He was called, he was an engineer, and he'd been moved into a ghetto and uh, was called one night by a German, uh, a Nazi officer to go into a room. The story's told in a book called The Sunflower. He went into the room and there lying on a table in the room was an SS officer. And the SS officer said to Simon Weisenthal, um, I am, he was dying, he'd been injured in a battle. And he said, I was the leader of a group of soldiers that burned down a village in Russia. And we packed one house full of Jews and burned them alive. And I need someone to forgive me for what I've done. Will you forgive me? A dying man's request. What would you do? Honestly, what would you do? Simon Weisenthal got up and left the room. And he thought about it for the rest of his life until the, not so long ago when he died. After the Second World War, he wrote to leading theologians, Jewish and Christian, and he said to them, what should I have done? And they gave their various answers in a book called The Sunflower. It's moving, it's challenging, and it's profound. He did it again in the 1990s, 1980s, 1990s, with the same question asked of others. 
This time people that you and I would be familiar with, Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela, men and women whose names you would recognize. And you can read their answers too. I'm not so interested in their answers, I'm interested in your answer. What would you do? Weisenthal said he didn't have the power to forgive because it wasn't done on him. It was done on somebody else. But in that moment, he was a representative Jew. In some ways, you could say that the SS officer was victimizing him again. Get me a Jew. Any Jew will do. Just get me somebody that I can get forgiveness for, from for what I've done. I'm not sure if I could have forgiven the man. I think I would perhaps have needed to have left the room as well. I don't think that makes me a lesser Christian. I don't think it makes me uh, embarrassed. I think it's just me being honest with you. Back to Corrie Ten Boom. What did she do? When that German officer reached out his hand and said, can you forgive me? Everything in Corrie Ten Boom wanted to refuse the act. She wanted to shout in the man's face, you killed my sister. You starved us. You treated us like gutter rats. How can I forgive you? But in that moment, she made a decision that she didn't feel. She reached out her hand toward him and she said, I forgive you because God has forgiven me. And as her hand, before her hand touched his hand, she was filled with resentment, filled with anxiety, filled with anger at this man and all that he represented. But as his hand and her hand touched She felt something begin to change in her life. And slowly something began to dissolve in her. She wrote about it many times afterwards and this is one of the things that she said. Forgiveness is the key which unlocks the door of resentment and the handcuffs of hatred. It breaks the chains of bitterness and the shackles of selfishness. The forgiveness of Jesus not only takes away our sins, it makes them as if they have never been. When I became a Christian, there was somebody in my life that I had to forgive. I knew I had to. They had done terrible things to me but I was presented with a conundrum. I was 16. I could either hold on the rest of my life or I could forgive them. And I had to make a choice. And I remember the night that I made it. I went to this person And I said to them, I want you to know that I forgive you for what you have done on me and that I love you. Nothing changed. You wanted the story to be, they suddenly burst into tears and said, oh, I'm so sorry, thanks very much. Nothing changed. It had no impact on them whatsoever. For the next 14 years, twice a week, 
every week. I rang this individual and they didn't say a word to me. They passed the phone on to somebody else. Twice a week, every week, for 14 years, I had to make a choice. And it felt as if I was making it afresh every time. I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. And slowly, not miraculously, not suddenly, not like a waterfall hitting me or a shower being turned on, slowly in my soul and in my heart, my attitude toward this person began to change. So by the time you got to the late 1990s, my I forgive you was no longer me saying, I'm having to make this decision only. It was, I want to make this decision. I want to see you free. I want something in you to change. I long for it. But looking back over my life, I think it's probably one of the hardest situations I've ever had to face. Perhaps not the hardest, but certainly one of them. I don't know if you ever remember the young woman, Kim Phuc. Kim was a young girl from Vietnam. And those of you that will remember the Vietnam War will remember one particular picture, in, um, particularly, showed a young girl running away from what was called a napalm bomb. A napalm bomb was a chemical bomb, and she was burned from the top of her head to the back of her foot. She was naked and running away from a bomb that had been dropped by the Americans on Vietnam and had impacted innocent people. The young girl in the picture was Kim Phuc. She became a Christian. She found grace and power to forgive the people that had attacked her and went on to have a little child of her own. And she now travels the world talking about the power of forgiveness in her life. Or maybe you remember Jimmy Mizzen, the young boy that was killed about 15 or 16 years ago, murdered by a group of young fellas out one night. And his mum and dad appeared on television the following day and said, we forgive them. Brokenhearted, their lives devastated, everything having fallen apart. Or maybe you remember Gordon Wilson and the Remembrance Day bombing in Enniskillen in 1987 when he held Mary, his his daughter's hand as she died under the rubble. And he made a decision to forgive those that had done it. You think that what I'm about to say is, therefore, if they can do it, you can do it. I think one of the most dangerous teachings in the church today is that you have to be forced into unforgiveness. Or forced into forgiveness, I beg your pardon. See, if I force you into that place... If I make you feel guilty, if I make you feel dirty and rotten and useless because you're holding on to unforgiveness, I think I'm victimizing you again. I think I'm putting you into a situation where you feel as if I've got no options, I've got no way out, I have to do this, and you, the person who has been hurt, is hurt again by the preacher. You're made to feel useless again by someone else who has a three or four point easy evangelical sermon so that they can get their point across, but you're left trying to pick up the pieces. Unforgiveness is a really challenging, difficult thing in our lives. 
I think one of the reasons that we struggle with it is modern ideas of forgiveness focus mainly on what it feels like to forgive. For us, forgiveness is an emotion. But for Jesus, it was more concrete than that. The Greek word that is translated forgiveness in the New Testament is aphiemi. If you're writing notes, it's A-P-H-I-E and M-I in English transliteration. And it carries a whole range of meanings. It includes to cancel a debt like in the story of the um, slave. Or to leave something or someone alone. To permit someone to go their own way like the prodigal son. To leave or to send away, to desert, to abandon, even to divorce. It has little to nothing to do with emotions. It appears 146 times in the New Testament, but is translated in most English versions as forgive, just 38. Considering the entire range of the meanings gives us an indication of what forgiveness might have meant to the listeners of Jesus in that first century. Most of all, forgiveness was an action, not a feeling. So our contemporary ideas about forgiveness as an emotional state must come from somewhere else, but they don't come from the Bible. Let me suggest to you five myths about forgiveness that might surprise you that many Christians believe. My aim is to teach you the truth tonight and let you see that the gospel sets us free. It doesn't bind us up. First of all, Jesus does not teach unconditional forgiveness. It's often suggested that he does. Nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus teach that forgiveness should be offered unconditionally. In Matthew, Jesus says that church members should forgive each other 70 times 7. We just read it in Matthew 18, 22. A number that symbolizes limitlessness, boundlessness. However, even though he preaches boundless forgiveness, he doesn't indicate that it has no conditions. He doesn't answer the question. The author of the Gospel of Luke repeats that very same story, but adds a condition to the forgiveness that is offered, stating in Luke chapter 17, 3, that church members must forgive boundlessly if there is repentance. Not only that, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus warns his disciples that there is a sin that can be committed which cannot be forgiven. He describes it as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 12, Mark chapter 3, and Luke chapter 10. Blasphemy means in Greek to speak against or to slander. And the meaning of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is open to interpretation. It's not what I want to preach on tonight other than to say this. If you're worried about having committed it, you haven't. I could say much more, but that's not the point of what I want to talk about. But it's clear that if this is a sin that God will not forgive under any circumstances, then God doesn't have unconditional forgiveness. And therefore, it can't mean that for us. More controversially, if I asked you to think of a Bible story that articulates forgiveness powerfully, I wonder which one you would think of. Maybe the woman taken in adultery. Do you remember the story? It's told in John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. And in it, 
we have this powerful story of a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery and she seeks forgiveness or she, she is lying on the ground and she cries out to God. Uh, the, the men gather around her ready to kill her and Jesus kneels beside her and writes in the sand. Do you remember the story? It's a powerful story. There are three examples in the Bible of God writing. I don't know if you realize that. The first one is God writing with his own finger the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. The second is in the, um, the room of King Nebuchadnezzar where he writes on the wall, mene, mene, tikel, eupharism, which means you have been found and weighed in the balances and found wanting. And the third is in, Matthew, in John chapter 8 where he writes in the sand. It always strikes me as interesting as the first time he writes... He gives the law. The second time he writes, he convicts someone under the law. And the third time he writes, he releases somebody from the condemnation that they feel because of the law. But read the story carefully. At no point does he forgive her. What is it he says? She's lying in the sand, for those of you that don't know the story, surrounded by accusers, probably one of the people that has committed adultery with her, and he's getting away with it because he's a bloke. Something's never changed, ladies, eh? Maybe one day, God willing. And he looks at that woman and he says, woman, where are your accusers? He looks at the people around, he says, let the person that is without sin cast their first stone. Then he says to her, where are your accusers? And she says, nothing. And he said, well, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Now you can infer forgiveness from that story, but it doesn't say that he has forgiven her. It says that he chose not to condemn her. That's different. He chooses not to condemn her. God will not condemn you if you come before him honestly tonight. But if you don't turn away from your sin, you carry it out the door with you. He doesn't automatically take it. You've got to give him it. You've got to lay it at his feet. That woman was liberated from condemnation. Whether she ever became a follower of Jesus, we simply don't know. The third, perhaps controversial area, is what happens on the cross. I'll refer to it a little later on, but you know the moment. Jesus is dying, and he says what to his father? Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. He entrusts their forgiveness to God, his father. He doesn't do the forgiving in that moment. This is careful exegesis that has profound implications on the way that we live, because a lot of you have been taught through courses or books or things that you've read, you must forgive, and if you don't, there's something wrong with you. This is more complicated than that. It's more profound than that, and it's more important than that. Jesus, when he asks his father to forgive, as he hangs on the cross, is committing them in Luke 23, 34, into his father's hand. The syntax reveals that Jesus isn't, in fact, forgiving his attackers. He is praying that his father will do so. The fourth area 
is what we referred to this morning, if you were here, if you weren't watching online, in Matthew chapter 5, when I asked you, Campbell, to slap me in the face, and you wouldn't do it. That somehow turning the other cheek in Matthew chapter 5 is about forgiveness. It's not about forgiveness. It's about non-retaliation. It's about saying something about your equality to someone else. For those of you that weren't here this morning, I'm not, do you want to do it again? You're not sure, are you? Well, I could ask you because you didn't hit me, but imagine for a minute that I'm standing in front of somebody. For the, who wasn't here? No, I'm going to tell you anyway. I'm standing in front of someone, and they slap me in the face with their left hand. They slap me on my face with their left... That's my left hand. Paul, you, you're going to be the expert. I'm going to slap you, though, because <laughs> you're, you're too strong to slap me. Um, this is what I did earlier on. I want to show it to you again just to explain it to you. Um, Jesus talks about somebody slapping you in the face and you offering them the other cheek in Matthew chapter 5. Um, a Roman in a Roman-occupied territory, to slap someone in the face, you used your left hand. Left hand against right cheek. In Roman culture, the left is sinister, it's, it's dodgy, it's the weakest, most uh, least valuable part of us. The right is the strongest. So when a Roman soldier takes his left hand and strikes a Jewish peasant on the right cheek, he is saying, you're less than me. Now, there's only one other way that I can hit him, and that is to take the back of my left hand and hit the right of his cheek. That is saying the same thing. So either way, if I slap him from this position, I'm saying you're less than me or you're doubly less than me. What Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 is offer the other cheek, offer the other cheek, Paul. The only way that I can, I have to use this hand. And if I use this hand to slap him, then suddenly what I've done is use my left hand to slap his right side and I am his equal. And because he's turned away from me, culturally that changes what's happening with this hand. So the only way I can hit him now is like that, with his face away from me, or like that. And that is an act of defiance, thanks Paul. That's an act of saying, I am equal to you. It's got nothing to do with forgiveness or unforgiveness. That's not what the passage is about and lastly, and really importantly, there's a myth that if you are forced to forgive, it sets you free. If you're forced to forgive, it will tie you up in knots for the rest of your life. It'll make you feel useless and worthless and even more dirty and even more of a failure. If a preacher or a pastor treats you as if you're somehow less because you don't have the ability to forgive in the way that she or he thinks you should, then they're not doing you any favors. So what do I want to say to you about forgiveness and unforgiveness? I want to say that forgiving people does set you free. But I want to help you to choose that decision, not have it forced upon you. I want you to understand that there's a route that you can take whoever you are tonight, online or in this room, that can see you free of it forever. It's a hard route, but it's a route that is worth it. It can unbind you. It can, un it can release your soul and spirit, but only if you make the choice to let it. And you might need time to do that, and you might need help to do that, and you might need someone to walk alongside you to do that. That's the, 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 the unglamorous part of being a pastor sitting with a woman or a man and helping them to work this through until they're ready, until they're able with a clear and honest heart to forgive the person that has hurt them. 
This all roots into what you think God is like. What do you think God is like? Not long ago, I was in the United States doing some work, and I passed a billboard. You know those big billboards outside the churches there? And the sign said this, God is angry. And then underneath it were three words. Homosexuality, abortion, and Democrats. That's how some people in Northern Ireland feel. But you wouldn't put Democrats, you'd put nationalists. Or Catholics. Or if you were on the other side of the fence, you'd put loyalists and Protestants. But fundamentally, we can end up being convinced that God always agrees with us. Isn't it remarkable that God can sound so like me? He can approve of all of my choices and all of my preferences and all of my principles. It is very convenient. What do you think God is like? Do you think he hates people? Do you think he looks at the world and he says, Ugh! Do you think he sees your neighbor coming down the street and he thinks, Ugh! Every time I see him, I just want to, he turns my stomach. What do you think God is really like? Because the way you think of him, how you understand him, will shape the way you behave and live and trust and talk about him. God is like this. He hears his son saying, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. And he does it. Listen to this from Exodus chapter 34. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Oh, don't we wish the verse had stopped there. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. What is God like? Pure, blazing love and grace and mercy. And he will let us have our own way. And we will live with the consequences of our choices. And now we're getting closer to something that can enable us to make a decision. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 24 to 40, 26. God speaking to Israel. You have not brought any fragrant perfume for me or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Review the past for me. Let us argue the matter together. State the case of your innocence 
Micah chapter 7, verses 18 to 20, from the paraphrase, the message, where is the God who could compare with you, wiping the slate clean of guilt, turning a blind eye, a deaf ear, to the past sins of your purged and precious people? You don't nurse your anger. You don't stay angry long, for mercy is your speciality. That's what you love most, and compassion is on its way to us from you. You'll stamp out our wrongdoing. You'll sink our sins to the bottom of the ocean. You'll stay true to your word to Father Jacob and continue the compassion you showed grandfather Abraham. Everything you promised our ancestors from a long time ago, you will do. Corrie ten Boom, speaking about those words, said this, this is how God deals with my sin. This is how he deals with my brokenness and my shame and my wrongdoing. He bundles it all up in a big parcel and he throws it into the sea of his forgetfulness and then he lifts a sign and plants it in the, gra- in the, in the water that says, no fishing. Imagine it. If I could give you a list of the mistakes I've made, the sins that I've committed, the, the wrongdoing, the things that I've thought, and then tell you that God bundles it all up, Malcolm Duncan's sin, all of it, and throws it into the sea of his forgetfulness, and then declares to the whole world, no fishing. I have dealt with everything that my son has done. My goodness, what life that gives to me. What hope that gives to me. What fresh start that gives to me. But then how do we work that all out in our lives? Relationships can be hard work. Anybody that's married will say amen. Many have come to the brink of divorce over who has the duvet. Who gets to sleep on the left-hand side or the right-hand side. Words said, things done, attitudes developed over years. Let me remind you of something if you're married. You didn't marry a body, you married a person. And she might or he might be sagging a bit at the edges. The paper might be a bit wrinkled. Might do with a bit of an iron every now and again to straighten them out. But in that commitment, you've got to work it out somehow. And sometimes you can't. There are men and women sitting in this room or listening online. And you've gone through the hardship and the pain of a divorce. You did everything you could. And in the end, for your own well-being or for your children's well-being or for your family's well-being, you had to make a choice to have a fresh break and you brought it before God with a broken heart and you said, this is the only option I knew and I don't know what else to do. Do you think for one minute that God's going to hold you in a cell for the rest of your life over that? Forgiveness can be hard. Relationships are difficult. I know this is going to sound really weird to you. Really weird. I didn't even, I've been working out all day whether I should even tell you. We have four children. And when we lived in England, in London, oh, nearly 20 years ago now, one of them stole a crunchy. (laughs) From our fridge. (laughs) And I wanted it. And I lined them up downstairs and I said, who stole the crunchy? (laughs) And of course, all four of them said, not us, not me, Dad. I said, who stole the crunchy? Funny story. I left them standing for an hour. 
And I completely lost my temper. With four children. Until one of them was so frightened of me. So afraid of their daddy. That she said, I did it, Danny. That was nearly 20 years ago. I failed as a dad. I hurt my children because I was trying to make a point. It's one of the things, and you might think, it's a crunchy for goodness sake. For me, it broke my relationship with my children. And if I could go back and do it again, I'd flip and just give them all a crunchy. (laughs) None of us are good at this. None of us have got it right. There's a man that leads a church not very far from here. And not in Dundonald, in case you're all thinking I'm talking about a church that's close. It's not that church. You can laugh at that. Laugh and then stop. (laughs) Just helping you all, okay? Those of you that are part of the Dundonald family, in-house joke, sorted. Not that church. Many years ago, many years ago, this man hurt me. He spread a lie about me that wasn't true. And for 20 years, he didn't speak to my wife and I. 20 years. And I had to choose again and again and again to forgive him. Until one Friday afternoon, where I was the keynote speaker at a very big conference in England, and I was standing in the dinner queue, and it was a big queue. And four people in front of me was this man. And I thought, oh my goodness. What's going to happen here? And I said to the Lord, if you want to deal with this, then deal with it. And a fella came along and he said, tapped at the people between me and this other person and said, we've got to go to that meeting. And the man in front of him turned around and looked at me and he went, oh. I said, did you not realize I was the speaker? He said, no, I wouldn't have come. I said, well, we've got a couple of options here. You can turn back around and pretend that you didn't see me, but you know that's a lie, and I know that's a lie. We can talk it through and sort it out, or we can agree that we're never going to speak to each other again. I'm not choosing the last option, and I'm not choosing the first option. What option would you like to choose? And we talked it through. It was hard. And again, I had to make a decision to forgive him. I'm glad I did. It hasn't changed lots of things, but it definitely did something in me. You see, forgiveness does change us if we allow it to change us. I don't know how often you go shopping, but when you go into Eurospar or Asda or Tesco's now, you used to have to, I used to work in crazy prices in Glengormley, where you had to type in the price. Now it's all done by barcode. They just scan it and through it goes. The barcode tells you what's inside, but imagine for a moment that the barcodes got muddled up and oxtail soup and dog food got mixed, but on the outside, the barcodes were still the right way around. You barcode dog food as oxtail soup. 
it's still going to go through his oxtail soup, even though it's dog food, right? Some of us have a Christianity that is powerless, and it's been barcoded Christianity, but inside we don't have the power to forgive. We're still holding on to our resentments. We're still clinging to the things that have been done to us. And we're living impoverished lives because of what we have understood Christianity to be. Here's what you do when you forgive someone a wrong that they've done in you. You decide that you will not make them suffer. You draw a line under it. And you say, I'm not going to put you through the ringer anymore. I don't want your life to be destroyed by this. I don't want the worst for you. I'm letting you go. I'm letting you go into God's care. I may not feel it, but I'm making a decision. And I'm saying, you're not going to dominate me anymore. You're not going to control me anymore. You're not going to be somebody who victimizes me anymore. And the basis of the decision is the way that God has treated you. And here's the deal. When it comes to forgiveness and unforgiveness, I could dress this up in lots of different ways, but I'm just going to tell you the truth. Psalm 103, verses 10 to 14, tells us that God does not deal with us according to our sins. And aren't we glad about that? So here is the decision that you must make tonight. And I can't make it for you, but I'd like to help you make it. Every time you make a judgment about somebody else, you're asking God to judge you in the same way. That's the key to forgiveness and unforgiveness. If you choose to hold on to the wrongs that have been done to you, then you're asking God to hold on to the wrongs that you've done to him. If you look at someone and say, I'll never forgive you, then the next breath, without you saying it, is God never forgive me. That's the choice you're making. And you must make it. I don't want to underestimate giving and receiving forgiveness. It's hard. Our emotions don't always follow our decisions. They take time. We often need somebody that we can talk to. We need somebody to acknowledge the pain. My own conviction is that repentance is an important part of the process. I'll talk about it in a moment. Forgiveness is an act of the will. It's not an emotion, it's a decision. And it's something that you can only give personally. So Simon Weisenthal, of course, couldn't forgive somebody when they hadn't done anything on him. Don't you think it is therefore remarkable that Jesus forgave so many people who hadn't done anything on him? Unless, of course, they had, because he was God in flesh. He was a good Jew, and he knew that the only person that could offer forgiveness for sins committed was God. So when somebody said to him, forgive me my sin, why didn't he say, I can't do that? Instead, he did forgive them. Imagine for a moment that um, 
I slapped my wife and then asked Campbell to forgive me. What would you say, Campbell? He'd say no, because he can't. I didn't slap him, did I? I can only get forgiveness from the person that I have slapped. Yes? So think about David for a moment, who commits adultery with a woman called Bathsheba, and his repentance story is told in Psalm 51. And here's what he says. This man has betrayed a woman. He's betrayed a family. He's betrayed an army. He's betrayed a nation. He's betrayed his own family. He's betrayed his own children. He's destroyed the monarchy. He has devastated the whole system of Jewish society because of one lustful decision while standing on a rooftop watching a woman bathing naked. And here's what he says to God in Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But he has sinned against Bathsheba, against her husband, against the army, against Israel. And yet the thing that he needs to get sorted out above everything else is that he sinned against God. Do you remember the story of the man who couldn't walk? And he was brought to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven you. And the people watching said, who does this man think he is forgiving sin? And the Bible says Jesus knew their heart and he looked up at them and here's what he said. Knowing their hearts, Jesus said to them, so that you might know that the Son of God has authority on earth to forgive sin. I say to this man, take up your bed and walk. In other words, he physically healed him to demonstrate that he had just forgiven him. Don't allow that to equate in your head to sickness being a result of sin. That's not true. But Jesus has the power to forgive us. He has the power to set us free. Only you can forgive the person that's hurt you. I can't do it for you. But listen to me carefully. If we come to God in forgiveness, if we come to him in humility, if we come to him in honesty, then the reverse of what David has said is also true for us. He has sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against her husband. He sinned against the army. And he sinned against Israel. And he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. In other words, he recognized the, the primacy of that sin. But the minute he acknowledges it, God has the power not only to forgive David, but to flow his forgiveness through David to the other person. So when I say to God, I love you and I need you and the sins that I've committed against you, I throw myself at your mercy. Any sin is a commitment, a sin, an offense against two people for want of a better illustration. The person sinned against and God. So when you bring your inability, your weakness, your hurt, your shame, your sense of unforgiveness, your sense of injustice, and give it to God, you're giving it to the only other person in the entire universe who has the power to release unforgiveness, and he will release it through you to them. And you are set free. You are liberated. You might not feel liberated but you're liberated. Forgiveness comes from God. In him we have redemption, Ephesians 1, 7, the forgiveness of sins. And it costs something always, the shedding of blood, the shedding of tears, the naming of the heart, 
I've walked with some of you in this room around this issue in the last four months. You've been hurt by leaders. Don't ever allow that to appear as nothing. God knows your heart. He knows the heartbreak that you've been through. And he wants to take the pain and the sorrow that is in your heart and release you from it. And he asks you to recognize his grace. He asks you to turn your mind toward him to receive his mercy and his kindness and to believe that it can change. Some time ago, I was facing a particularly difficult time in my Christian life because of sorrow, actually. And I said to God, I'm finding it hard to praise you but I can worship you because of your character. And I can give you my pain. Will you take that? Not long after it, I had a dream. And in the dream, the same thing was reenacted. I said to God, I, I can only give you my pain. And in my dream, the pain was a pile of old, dirty rags. Filthy. Things that you wouldn't touch, you know. And I said, would you take these? Because this is all I can give you. And God smiled at me. And he looked at me. And he said, yes, Malcolm, I can take that. Thank you. And then he twisted it, like you were wringing out a dishcloth, and gold fell out of the bottom of it. And he said, that's what you've given me. I think that's what we do when we give him our unforgiveness. We left a whole load of rags. And we say to God, I, I don't know how to deal with this. So will you please take it? And he looks you in the eye. And he says, yes, I'll take that. Thank you. And he rings out the gold in it. I think that's what God wants to do. Here tonight in this place. And that becomes possible when we realize his mercy. I wonder if this evening, some of us need to not just bury the hatchet, but bury the handle that's on the hatchet. (laughs) And for the last time, put it to bed. Because no matter how much you've been hurt, you've hurt God more. Make the right comparison. No matter how much you feel you've been hurt, you hurt God more.
and he forgave us. In 1492, two Irish families, the Butlers of Ormond and the Fitzgeralds of Kildare, were involved in a bitter feud. This is a true story. The disagreement centered around the position of the Lord Deputy. Both families wanted one of their own to take the position. In 1492, the year that Columbus discovered America, for those of you that are interested, that tension broke into outright warfare. And a skirmish occurred between the two families just outside the city walls of Dublin. The butlers realized that the fighting was getting out of control, so they ran into the chapter house of St. Patrick's Cathedral. The Fitzgeralds followed them with shillelaghs and clubs and anything else that they could find into the cathedral and asked them to come out and make peace. The butlers were afraid and they said that if they did come out, they would be slaughtered. So they refused to do so. As a gesture of good faith, the head of the Kildare family, Gerald Fitzgerald, only in Ireland. My brother worked with a journalist once called Dermot McDermott, but that's another story. The head of the family, Gerald Fitzgerald, ordered that a hole be cut in the door. He then thrust his arm through the door and he offered his hand in peace to those on the other side. Upon seeing that Fitzgerald was willing to risk his arm by putting it through the door to the butlers, the butlers realized that he was serious in his intention. They shook hands through the door. The butlers emerged from the chapter house and the two families made peace. And the war stopped. The door is still in St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin. And the hole that was cut out is still there. Take a trip down and see it. It's called the Door of Reconciliation. It's where we get the phrase, chance your arm. Are there any family heads here that need to chance their arm? Are there any husbands that need to chance their arms with their wives? Any wives that need to chance their arms? Any young people that need to chance their arms? Anybody hurt in the last couple of years and you need to chance your arm? I love you. I love this church family. I have deliberately and intentionally not dwelt on all that has gone on in previous years but I am not leading us into resentment and carried on hatred. I'm not leading you into a broken future. God has called me to lead us into a future that is full of hope and grace and mercy and reconciliation. And I'm not just talking about churches, I'm talking about your family. Any of you remember that comedian? Can't remember his name myself. I think it was James... He was, he was Orange Lil, I think. James Young, thank you so much. How did you know that so quickly? <laughs> Chasing after the train. Do you remember James Young? Do you remember what he would say at the end of his broadcasts? 
Anybody remember? Stop fighting, will you? He'd look down the screen and he'd say, stop fighting, will you? Well, I don't quite sound like that. Stop fighting, will you? Whoever's hurt you. I don't mean you have to go back. I don't mean you're going to become bosom buddies. I don't mean you're going to get up every morning and be right back to where you were. Some things cost something. Friendships might have been ruptured. Relationships might have been changed. You may not ever be as close to the person that has hurt you or you have hurt again. But you you can let go of the resentment. You can let go of the hurt. You can let go of the pain. You can let go of the heartbreak. It's a choice. And for those of you that are here this evening that are not yet Christians, none of this is possible without Jesus. This isn't me adding a gospel tag at the end of a meeting. This is the heart of the gospel. When you didn't deserve it, he reached out his hand to you. When you had your back turned on him, he turned his face toward you. And if your family or your life or your marriage or your home or your heart has been gripped with unforgiveness, then a different place is possible. And it might take time, but in your heart, you know that what I am saying is true. It begins as you encounter the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus in fresh ways. And he is here tonight to forgive you of everything. To wash the slate clean and give you a new start. What would I not give for that? You may have come in feeling burdened. You may have come in feeling distant. You may have come in feeling hurt. You may leave carrying much of that with you. I'm not a miracle worker, but you can leave with your heart right. You can leave with your mind set toward doing the right thing. You can put your roots down into the church that you're part of, this one if you're part of our church, knowing that God is at work. You can leave the past in the past. And I only want to say one more thing. I think for many of you, the person that you find hardest to forgive is yourself. But God has forgiven you. And learning to live in that is the most liberating reality that a human being can ever experience. Right where you are, you are loved. And he is ready to give you a cleansed conscience, a new beginning. And that might mean that you've got to have some conversations. Instead of blaming everybody else, 
you might have to do some thinking about yourself. But God can set us free if we let him. Would you pray with me, please? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand this evening. I'm going to pray two different prayers. The first is for those that are already Christians that want to put things right. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my disappointment. I give you the sense of injustice. I give you the offense. I give you my anger. I don't want to carry it anymore. Please help. that I have hurt. And I give you the people that have hurt me. Please give me love in my heart for them. Help me not to hold on to these things. Help me to live free. Let something change in me now. By the power of the Holy Spirit. My second prayer is for those that would like to become Christians. Before I can forgive anyone else, Lord, I need your forgiveness in my heart. My well isn't deep enough. My resources aren't profound enough to sort out my life. I am sorry. Forgive me. Accept me as I am. And bring me into your family. And let your forgiveness flow through me to those that have hurt me and those that I've hurt. 
let the feud end here. At the foot of the cross. In Jesus' name. Amen. Some of us perhaps need to give God the anger we feel toward him. For taking people that we loved. For letting us get into situations that we Deeply regret. Of course, he didn't do anything wrong. But we can feel it, can't we? I want us to close this evening by singing a song that we sang at the beginning of the meeting, if that's okay. Oh, come to the altar. And I pray that God in his grace and in his mercy will reach into your soul and bring grace by the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe this is going to be an extremely important moment in which God will break through many of the barriers that are in our lives. So just let him do what he wants to do. Let's stand together if we're willing and able.